Vengeance belongs to the Lord. I think everybody is familiar with that scripture one way or another. So we're going to talk about vengeance tonight. It's something that's in a series we've talked about, uh, a re-examination of the word hell and the concepts that surround hell. We've talked about a re-examination of, of the concepts of judgment. We've talked about a re-examination recently of the concept of justice, and I'm going to review that just for a very brief moment. And then we also threw together, I threw together some images, which we're going to review in the first slide, about expectations about eternity. And uh, the, I'm liking that phrase more, and I'm, I'm planning on keeping that in my vocabulary, because expectations are what we have about eternity. We also have doctrines, but what we don't have is we don't have the kind of ironclad knowledge that we sometimes act like or wish we did. Uh, even, you know, Jesus said, uh, you know, no man knows the day or the hour. The Father's reserved that for him. And uh, the first question that the disciples asked, or, or it wasn't the first one when they saw him, because he'd been with them in the Sea of Galilee and visited on there and wrote Mass and so on after the resurrection. But as he was getting ready to, to leave, and they didn't know, I don't think that there was an ascension coming up in just 30 seconds. But the, the So it would be the last question that they asked Jesus after the resurrection, before the ascension, was, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So they were looking back at the, the presumption that they had carried their whole life. And some of us have carried presumptions about eternity. And uh, I just, uh, as you guys know, one of my things is I think the Scripture gives us permission to look at stuff and to think a little bit differently about things. And so I want to I share that and give you that same permission. So vengeance belongs to the Lord. Let's be faithful and stay in our line, our lane if vengeance belongs to him. So here we go. So this is a little bit of a review about the three uh, kind of icons. The first one is sort of the traditional, uh, conventional view of uh, heaven and hell. Um, You live your life, you are exposed to the gospel, you respond or you don't respond, and then there's all kinds of other complications in there that some people have, and some have less, some have more. Uh, A lot of it revolves around the cross, but essentially there's heaven as a destination, and there's hell as a destination. And for the most part, uh, when you go to one of those, that's where you are, and there's no thought of it going anywhere different. That is a very common, uh, a very common expectation. There are two or three scriptures, Matthew uh, 24, uh, passage in Revelation about the lake of fire, that that answers pretty well. There are probably 60 or 70 other scriptures that speak about all and speak about a lot of other stuff that it doesn't answer well at all. Uh, so it's not the only option to believe it. It has never been. The only option, there are a number of early church fathers that consider uh, other issues. Now, when I first put this up, I had these things three equal size, and that middle one represents uh, what is commonly called universal reconciliation or Christian universal reconciliation. I, uh, I talked about all three of them as potential options that people do believe in, and I have a number of friends that that believe in that. I'm pretty close to believing in it, but I believe in it as a subset of this last one. So that's why I rearranged that, uh, because for the most part, the weakness of uh, scriptural arguments about uh, Christian universalism is it does answer a lot of the all questions really well, but it doesn't really answer the others. Uh, So I certainly understand where people's hope comes from in that way, uh, absolutely, but I don't. Uh, I don't know that without tackling the issues of, of uh, transformation, judgment, and, and even the stuff we're talking about, like evil and and 
how's God going to take care of that judgment and all that. So for, for reminder, I'm just letting you know that I'm holding that as a hope in connection with this thing that I called new creation or uh, covenant future. And that one has a little bit of complexity to it. You see, uh, I'll just point it out up here. So, you know, to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. That's what that little guy represents. And then uh, Jesus said that uh, uh, how he wished there was a fire to be kindled. Every man's work will be tested by fire. And uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that everyone work works are going to be tested by fire. Uh, and uh, that they're going to pass through there. They're going to suffer loss if there's things that get burned up that are wood, hay, and stubble versus stone. So anyway, this is a, a little bit more complex picture of the expectation of eternity. And anytime any of you want to talk more in depth about that, we'll do it. I just want to remind you that these are kind of something I've sown out here. There are some ways to anticipate eternity that make things like um, uh, judgment and justice and these things take on a little bit different meaning. So that's what that's about. And I'd entertain a question for that after after service for sure. I mean, after the message. All right, so here's what we took a, a quick look at in regards to justice. And there basically are uh, just a few Old Testament words that, that do that, but there's this enormous variant in justice being translated out of those words. So if you'll notice there, the New American Standard has 129 instances of justice in the Old Testament. The King James has 28. Young's Literal has 8. And then when you get back into a modern translation like the New Living, you have 149. So the reason, just by the sake of review, is there's 114 different times that the word that is primarily used in the Old Testament for judgment, mishpat, is translated justice. And it's almost every time that it's paired with the concept of righteousness. And so some something in the theology and in the intent, the translator's intent with the New American Standard, felt like it made more sense to pair the word justice and righteousness rather than judgment and righteousness. And I don't think there's a need for that, because if you remember when we looked at judgment, judgment, Jesus said, which I think is like the quintessential word. She's totally cool too, by the way. No worries. <laughs> judgment. Uh, this is judgment, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Okay. So anyway, that's that. Uh, so you, the reason I put this up is we're going to run into some of these same concepts talking about the idea of vengeance. Here are biblical words for justice in the New Testament. And the only thing I want to review tonight is this. Do you see the similarity in these words, all except for Croesus? Croesus is a primary word in the New Testament for judgment. It's translated justice four times. But decay, dikaios, dikaiosune, and dikaio, those are all words that uh, a number of modern translations translate to mean justice. But what those words really mean almost all the time, like for instance, 45 out of 79 times, dikaios is translated and means righteousness. 90 out of 92 times, dikaiosune means righteousness. So you have to question why are people uh, translating that as justice if they're not 
looking for justice is something. And that was something that, that we're going to be talking about a little bit, that maybe justice is not the best concept. Uh, keep on going down. And this word, ectokasis, is going to be a direct translation into what we're going to look at tonight specifically about um, vengeance. Because it's translated vindicator revenge, but it's used for justice a couple times. Okay, so now we're ready to start for tonight. So here's what we're going to look at. Vengeance. Um, you guys know that I feel more, I feel comfortable, I think it's right, to actually look at what the Bible says about something before we try to wrestle with our meanings of it. So that's why I want to do the word studies. But honestly, vengeance is one of the easiest ones we've looked at, easiest words we've looked at. Now, calm is the Hebrew word. There's a verb version of that and a noun version of it. And they're just, they mean vengeance or avenge. Uh, and this 79 times that these words are used, they mean that all the time. So there's not a whole lot of... Vengeance is basically what you think it is. It's paying somebody back, sometimes with punishment, sometimes with violence, sometimes with imprisonment. It's paying them back for doing wrong things. So there's not a whole lot of nuance, like in some of these other words we looked at. Uh, Nequama is the version there that is used almost exclusively, not totally, but almost exclusively by Jeremiah. And I've got some definitions coming up, but here's two passages that I think are important out of the Old Testament, and they share the essence of what um, vengeance and avenging is about. The first one is in Deuteronomy. This is where it's, it's first listed. Vengeance is mine, and retribution... In due time, their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. So you see how that is what we think about being vengeance. And the Lord claims it as his own. Vengeance is mine. Right? And so there's an association between that calamity coming upon people, coming upon the enemies of Israel, coming upon Israel sometimes, uh, and, and the Lord, there's, and, and that situation of vengeance. Now down in verse 43... It says, Rejoice, O nations, with the people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. I want to point out three things here. The word that's translated avenge and the word that's translated vengeance in 43 is the exact same Hebrew word. So it's just a, again, it's just a preferential translation. But again, avenge and vengeance are not that different, so we're not talking about real unique or different kind of motives. But I want you to look at the flow. So in verse 32 is the declaration that vengeance is mine, and that's where kind of a loose quote was made in Romans out of that through some of the Talmudic teaching and stuff. So vengeance is mine, mine being God, and retribution. And then you get down here, and it says rejoice with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants, and will render vengeance on his adversaries. But the last line is super important. And atone for his land and his people. So in the introduction to the concept of vengeance in the Old Testament, atonement was an equal part of it. That is super important to remember. Because we're going to see that Jesus is going to have something to say about vengeance. And he, in fact, is the one that atoned for our sins. It's sort of the same way when we looked at judgment and we realized that the first introduction to the concept of judgment 
was the, the breastplate of judgment, not to punish people, but to keep them close to the heart of the high priest and representing the nearness of the people of Israel to the heart of God when, every time he went in to render priestly service. It's the same thing with this vengeance. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, and it has the atonement right woven into it in the intent and purposes of God. Do you see that? I mean, I'm not trying to make that up. That's one sentence. Okay. The next one is Leviticus. And so this is the, one of the early um, pronouncements about the idea of vengeance. And it speaks pretty directly. Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance. But now listen to the next line. This sounds more like something Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount than it does an Old Testament thing. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the authority imprimatur, the authority stamp that God put on that is the phrase, I am the Lord. So, here's what this struck me. We're talking about vengeance. We know what vengeance is. We know deep in our hearts that people deserve vengeance that do evil. But when God says, vengeance is mine, and then he goes and specifically in the course of outlining the details about this, he says, you shall not take vengeance. There's no wiggle room in there. Now, there are times when the nation of Israel acts as a nation against other nations, and that's called God's vengeance. So I don't know how to fully explain that. But I know that from the beginning, talking with the people through Moses, he said, you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge. It reminds me, when I said it reminded me of the Sermon on the Mount, it's like Jesus said, you've heard it said, uh, an eye for an eye, or whatever. But I say unto you, even if you just call your brother a fool. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But if you look at a woman to lust after her, you know what I'm saying? This is kind of that same sense I get here. You shall not take a, a vengeance. Don't even bear a grudge. Now, I know that that's a hard thing to hear. And I know it's a hard thing to apply. But I think there's a reason that it's okay for God to say that, aside from just the fact that he's God and he can say what he wants. All right, so... Uh, there's a link with the atonement and there is a, a possessiveness about vengeance that God is taking and he's not releasing that option to us. Okay? So let's jump back to the Old Testament real quick. Here's nakam is that word and this is what the definition is. Uh, this is out of the uh, Word Study Dictionary. Uh, a verb meaning to avenge and take, event, take revenge, be avenged, suffer vengeance, take one's revenge. And in actual usage, the following ideas come out. In the simple, intensive, and reflexive stem, the word can mean take vengeance or to avenge. The Lord instructed his people, that, referring back to this 1918 passage, not to seek revenge against each other, for to do so was unworthy of them. I thought that was an interesting way that the the dictionary writers put that. The Lord took vengeance on his enemies and the enemies of his people, but he would also take vengeance on his own people if necessary. 
Uh, we studied about judgment, and we went through Jeremiah and the exile of the people to Babylon and all that kind of stuff. And vengeance is used occasionally in Jeremiah's language about that. Um, he would avenge the death of his servants, the prophets, and his city, Jerusalem. So the Lord took seriously this idea that vengeance is mine. Didn't mean he never executed it, but he never turned it back over to, to people in that sense. The second one, Nakwam, is, uh, it's got a little, whatever those, I don't know what the, the mark's called. It's a little drop mark that distinguishes it from the first one in Hebrew. Uh, it's a masculine noun, and it means revenge or vengeance. And so you can see there's not a lot of complication and not a lot of nuance here. It's just vengeance or what we're thinking. This term is employed to signify human vengeance. Two examples would be the case of salmon, Samson, Samson. <laughs> I'm hungry. Uh, Samson, uh, you remember when they, they poked his eyes out and he cried out to the Lord, let me avenge uh, people, and then, and then he brought the, the pillars of the building down. And the other was some instruction about the nature of the jealousy of a husband of a wife who commits adultery. Uh, his rage is called vengeance. And he says, uh, the, the scripture says it won't be cured. I don't think that gives us permission to do that, but nevertheless, that's how that word is used as the noun. But more often, it's used for divine repayment and generally on behalf of God for the people that have abused his people and so on and so forth. So again, I, I don't think we're off in thinking about what vengeance is. I don't think there's any mystery to it. The last one is nekoma. It's the feminine singular noun. Jeremiah's the one that used that. And he mostly referred to the vengeance of God, sometimes against Israel's enemies, but sadly also sometimes against Jerusalem and the children of Israel after the idolatry. So I, I just put that up there because I want you to know that what you think vengeance is is probably what the Hebrews thought vengeance was too. And what we have as a, as a root in the, in the Bible. All right, so now in the New Testament, here are these words. Ekdikeo, ekdikesis, ekdikos, and dike. Do you see the similarity in those words? They're all about the idea of dike, and the definition of dike means what is just or what is right. And like dikeosune gets its meaning righteousness from dike as the root. So what we're talking about, the words in the New Testament, there's not that many of them. These Greek words are only used 19 times, and there's only about eight or nine times it's translated as vengeance or avenge. But they are all built around the root word of righteous or right. Okay? The right thing, the just thing, the right thing. It makes sense to me that that's where the word vengeance would come from. It doesn't have its own meaning. It is a meaning related to rightness or what is right. Okay? Now, there's this passage right here is probably the easiest one in the New Testament to understand, and it applies because both 1556, decay, uh, and ecdecasis are in it. Think how similar this passage in Romans sounds to what we just read in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Never pay back evil for any uh, uh, for evil to anyone. So, just to state the obvious, when do we have permission to pay back evil for evil? Never. <laughs> I didn't write that. It's there, though, okay? 
Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Again, be righteous. Oh, there we go. That's great. All right, no. (laughs) All right, stop. There we go. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Don't you love that little little phrase in the middle there? As, As much as it is possible for you. Truth is not unrealistic, guys. But it is much more lofty than we are willing to settle for most of the time. So you can have an admonition, never pay back evil for evil, and as much as is possible, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And that's a loose quote out of the Deuteronomy passage that we looked at. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's a quote out of Proverbs. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So a couple of things to understand here. All I'm asking us to do is to take seriously the simplicity of the prohibition. It could have been said a lot of other ways that would have left a lot of wiggle room. It isn't. Paul said, never, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will pay, or I will pay, says the Lord. Now, if we take back, if we take, if we return evil for evil, or if we take our own revenge, either individually or corporately or societally, if we do that, and I don't, I know that what I'm saying sounds impossible. I know it even sounds stupid. How could a society survive if you didn't do this? Blah, blah, blah. I understand all that. And I feel that. And I'm as, it's as easy for me to want to take revenge on people that are evil as it is for any of you. I guarantee you. But it's also incumbent upon me to try to, to, to believe what this is saying. And the reason that it's possible is because the Lord himself commits to this issue that he asks us to step back from. He will repay. He will repay. Now, for me personally, I have to guard against imposing my own carnality on my expectations of his repayment. Because I can be sucked into evil the same way then. All right, I'm going to keep my hands off. I don't have the power to punish anyway. I don't have the power for vengeance anyway. But I'm sure going to sit here and fondle it in my head. I'm going to fondle this hideousness. I'm going to fondle watching the guy get skinned alive and strung up on a... You know what I'm saying? And I think that we're still falling prey into the idea of do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we have to keep... We can't own the desire to return evil for evil. What we have to do instead is we have to 
when we feel that urge, and I think it's natural to feel that urge, frankly. I think it's even has a form of righteousness with it in a way, but it's not real righteousness. It's not the kind that would last forever. We have to realize, Lord, this is in your hands. This is in your hands. Just like when we are accused because we stumble and sin and do something like we know we shouldn't do and we thought we were done with it, we have a choice. We can either go and bear down, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and try to not sin. And there's a lot of people that advocate that that's the way to go. Or we can step back and go, Lord, forgive me. I'm sorry. I'm, I know that that's not who I am. I'm better than that. I trust you. I trust the work you did. I trust the atonement you provide. And that, in my experience as a pastor and as a person who deals with these kind of things, personally and corporately, is, is a quicker way to get down. You get up, you, you enjoy the forgiveness, you enjoy the grace, you let Father father you, and you, you move forward. I think that's what we're in danger of down there. And it's not like we don't have something given to us to do. And that is, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If your enemy has a need, try to meet that need. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. And there's a lot of study about that. That's not sneakily burning him alive. That is... (laughs) That is providing warmth and and comfort and uh, turning this whole thing back on on him. Hang on a sec. Now, uh, actually, just have a seat for a second. I got um, just a moment, and then I'm late up here. I think one thing that I want to leave us with tonight. This was really all I was trying to leave us with. I believe that that the intention of God's heart to not let us carry the burden and the potential crushing corruption of returning evil for evil. That the Father knew that we could not carry the, 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 the weight of justice and vengeance without it destroying us. That's why I read what I read in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. But I believe that Jesus came to change the need for that, the perceived need for that, or maybe even the real need for it. Because if God wasn't going to get involved in this, we'd have to do it just to survive. But And here's what I mean. This is Isaiah 61. Okay? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort those who mourn. And it goes on into the rest of this beautiful prophecy about trading uh, uh, sorrow for for gladness and ashes and all this kind of stuff. So this was the hope prophesied by Isaiah. Jesus came out of the wilderness. That's where the timing is on this. He came out of the wilderness and he came to Nazareth out of the temptation, the devil. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up 
And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he stood up to read. Now, let me paint just a little bit of a word picture. Emmanuel, God with us. This is the adult Jesus coming up out of baptism, fully filled with the Holy Spirit, driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be confronted with the devil, by the devil. And to be tempted as we are, yet without sin. He made it through there. He came back out. And one of the first places that he went to make an announcement about the kingdom and about himself. One of the first declarations that he made was in Nazareth, the place where he had grown up, the place where he had gone to synagogue, the place where he had learned Torah. And this is what he said. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. It was handed to him. The, the order of that day was the, the, the priest or whoever the head priest was there gave the person that was going to do the reading, right? Jesus didn't pick this spot. It was handed to him. Or maybe he did, but he opened it. Yeah, he opened it and found the place where it was written. So he chose that. But this was a timing thing. It was a revelation engineered by the Spirit of God. He found the place and he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed. So I don't know why there's the differences here. I know there's some case to be made for the Septuagint being the one they quoted from and different things. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. There's no question about it. This is the passage of Scripture he was reading. Isaiah 61. Let me read it again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him, Jesus. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All right, now obviously, that is a significant declaration about the gospel. Do you see where he stopped? Do you see what he didn't say? The Isaiah passage reads, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God. He read to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and he closed the book, and he gave it back. Jesus has taken responsibility as God for anything that vengeance requires. He has taken responsibility as the Son of Man, the incarnate one, to show us that he didn't come to declare that kind of balance that was prophesied. Isaiah prophesied what we expect justice and vengeance to provide. Balance. Equity. He didn't do that. 
Because he didn't come to provide what was equal. What did he come to provide? Forgiveness, repentance, transformation, restoration. Is anybody going to get away with anything? No. No, that's why he said, there's a fire to be kindled and I wish it were kindled now. That's why he talked about the fires of Gehenna. That's why he said, you think you're doing good if you don't sleep with some gal. I'm telling you, if you even think about it, you're guilty enough to go into the fires of Gehenna. He changed everything, but he took responsibility for the changes. And that's what we have to do. We have to let him take responsibility. Not passively, not with a suppression of our emotions, not with lying about what's right and wrong. We have to do it in faith. We have to do it in faith. So if not justice and vengeance, in what are we to place our hope, our expectations in our faith? Obviously Jesus, but here's what he said. And this is just me trying to pass something helpful on, I hope, to you as your pastor. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, I'm going to put that in there because I want you to hear this for you. Blessed are you who mourn, for you shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for you shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they, you, will be filled. There's no doubt about it. It's the nature of the kingdom. It's the work of God. It's the victory of Jesus. It's the ministry and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for you shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for you shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. There's nothing just about being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Justice won't solve that. Grace will have to solve that. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. My little flock... Jesus said, the Father delights to give you the kingdom. We have got to place more value, more faith, more hope in God's righteousness than we do in any form of justice that we can imagine. He is just. Nobody's going to get away with anything. That's not what grace is about. From the beginning, God said, I will atone for my people in my land. It was in the same sentence about, don't take vengeance on your own. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
So what I'm going to suggest, and I'm not suggesting that we, we go in our hearts, that we go soft on evil, soft on despicable evil, that, that we go soft on, on sin or anything like that. What I am suggesting is that we don't let ourselves be corrupted by evil seeking to resist evil. That instead, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's what I think is so important to understand about why the root of all those justice words in the New Testament is the same root for ten times that many words that are righteousness. Righteousness is at the root of justice. We can't bring justice. We can embrace righteousness. Now, maybe we can bring a little justice if we have control over it. If, you know, if, if we do something wrong and we want to recompense, of course, of course, of course. Don't, I don't think you even need me to elaborate that. Do the right thing. But in the, in the issues that are beyond us, pray for the right thing. But don't pray prayers that are framed by evil. Pray prayers that are framed by righteousness. The destination, the new Jerusalem, is defined like this. It is a place where righteousness dwells. Nothing unclean. And the things that you hate, the things that we see that are abusing people and and, and destroying children and women and, and, and our lives and our peace and our freedom, these things are unclean. They're not good. But don't let their uncleanness attach itself to you. Let your passion be wrapped around righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because why? You'll be filled. You'll be filled. If you hunger and thirst for justice, the way we understand it, you'll be frustrated. And I want us to be filled. So, this is why what you anticipate in the end is important. If everything has to be settled before a person dies, the justice deficit is impossible to overcome. If there is an opportunity for every person who does evil to actually be confronted with that evil in a way that they can be transformed and take the, the personal responsibility for it, that is the only solution to it. Something like that. I don't know. I'm not trying to project what heaven is like. Something like that makes room for righteousness to prevail in every case. And so anyway, next couple of weeks we're going to talk about the last two things. Punishment and eternity. But for now, we have a few minutes for questions. Yes, sir. It did, yes. Yeah, a few minutes ago. 
But you guys were good. You didn't get up and leave. Yes, sir. Sorry to keep you waiting. No, it's okay. Um, you had a verse in there, Leviticus, and the end of it was, but it says don't take vengeance. And the final phrase was, I am the Lord your God. Yeah. One of the most poignant statements I've ever seen in the entire Bible, uh, Joseph's brothers betrayed him, and then Joseph puts it right kind of aggressively. Um, well, after, over time, it took a long time for them to come to a fear of, what if now that dad's dead and their father died, now he wants to go after us? And Joseph said this word, am I in the place of God? So it's been kind of convicting because you're, you've, you've been talking to me quite a bit. I've been dealing with some vengeance feelings this mm -hmm. week and I've had to really say out loud in my cabin, be a forgiver, be a yeah. forgiver. Yeah. Um, and it never occurred to me, if you take vengeance, you are saying Jesus is not God and I am. That is what vengeance is. That is the, if, if you look at the ipso facto, the consequence of that Leviticus verse and what Joseph is saying, take vengeance, you just called yourself God and you don't have one. Yeah. So. Yeah, it, it's a, it has a lot of attendant problems. Alan, yes, buddy. That is spot on. What you said is spot on. There's been many times when the rejection I've received from my wife and, and six children and, and, and everybody is that, um, you know, the emotions and feelings often tell you to get vengeance. <laughs> but I do remember being in the shower one night after, I think about the fourth time being told I couldn't see my children. And the emotions and feelings were, 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 were massive about, you know, vengeance. But I remember yelling out loud to God, thank you, Father, that's not who I am. And I remember very clearly that, that God, these emotions and feelings pass. This time will pass. Use this time wisely for it shall pass. Use this time to grow into the man I predestined you to be. That's what he told me right at the beginning. And, and I think, the emotions and feelings that, that we feel, they're exactly that. They're just telling us the negative emotions and feelings are simply telling us that something's wrong. But they do not dictate who we are. And what I've learned is that that's negative emotions and feelings, the vengeance feelings are fine. They're just telling you there's something wrong, but it's not who we are. We pick up our cross daily. You know, this is who we are. We're sons of God. And that through that it shows his mercy and his grace. And and to me, do I pray for my kids? Do I do it? Yes, I do. I don't, there's not a day goes by when I'm not praying and, and making declarations over their goodness. Even even to my ex-wife who 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 did the nasty things, rejected children and 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 then, you know, parental alienation of other children. Um that's not who God created to be. When I married her about 30 odd years prior, she's an amazing lady and I saw who God created to be. That's why I married her. What she chose was her choice. And what, what the saddest bit is, all the people I've dealt with who, who have abused me and abused my relationship uh, with my children, 
they just don't know who God created them to be. And the biggest thing that I've learned is, you know, and I think I've said this once or twice before, is you've got to separate what they do and who they are in God's eyes. And if you combine the two, you'll see the negative. But if you separate, I can't, I'm holding the thing in the hand, so I can't. But if you separate from who they are and who they're created to be, and look at that created being and who God created to be, to be amazing, to be loved. If you look at them through those eyes, it allows you then to truly pray and, and bless them. But if you look at them for what they do, you can never truly pray for them in the way that God wants us to pray for them. Do you, do you experience, or do you feel like you experience, when you do try to make that separation, it doesn't mean you have to lie about the thing that was done wrong or ignore it or anything, but it just no. gives you an ability to take God's side on what he it's sees. Not. Yeah, pe- 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 people say, oh, you're over it. No, no, look, I wake up in the morning. Even this morning I woke up again with the old vengeance, if you get what I mean. When, 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 when the children you love and you look after and – and and just love with all your heart is removed from you. You can't, you, you do get angry. You do get frustrated. But each time I've got to take every thought captive and I get to the stage as a process. Before it used to take me hours. Fortunately, now it only takes me minutes. And and it's not that it's not there, not that the, the old flesh, the old flesh, we're fighting, we're fighting flesh. And it's not that the flesh ever goes away, unfortunately, but but it's taking those thoughts captive into obedience with Christ. And Christ says that you know He He just loves them. If you if you we are truly understand the love He has for the lost, you know, He's hanging on that cross with all those nails in His arms and being His back removed and the crown of thorns, and and He's saying, Father, forgive them. Because they know not what they do. They're living a lie. And they but biggest problem is, you know, they will reap what they sowed. They live with that with eternity. Unless they truly come truthful with God, unless they truly repent with him and receive his forgiveness, which is amazing, just like we have. And that's what I believe more than anything. It's like that. When we made those declarations all those couple of years ago, brother, and you told me that their their motives mercifully be exposed, that 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 the you know that my ex wife will become the amazing daughter of the Most High God she was created to be. That's what we're after. We're after them recognizing that they've become their own gods, and that they need the mercy and grace of God. And he loves them so much. I, I believe that's that's the biggest thing I'm realizing, how much he loves each of them. Amen. Yeah. So the question for me is, is it's super clear that vengeance isn't ours. I, I know that. Mm-hmm. But when you say it belongs to the Lord, people won't get away with anything. What does that mean? Uh Again, I think that we've grown up under a false notion that everything has to be sort of squared away in this life. 
but there are all kinds of there are all kinds of indications uh, Sodom is going to have a place in the day of judgment alongside Chorazin and places like this. They're just hints. I don't know how to guarantee that, but it means that persons who perpetrate evil do so with either an, a complete unawareness that they're evil or they make a joke about it or they so dehumanize the other people because mostly evil is between people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not just that you you uh, throw trash out on the street mm-hmm. or something. It's mostly a person dehumanizing another person. And I think in the world, we have a tendency to underestimate how bad it is, not overestimate it. Because the person that they're dehumanizing, dehumanizing is only half of what they're doing wrong. They are perpetrating evil against an image bearer of the living God. And they have no idea they're doing that. Otherwise, if that wasn't true, what is wrong with enslaving people? Do we feel... uh, What's wrong with eating people? Do we feel that it's a big moral thing when a coyote runs down a rabbit and eats it? I mean, if, if we're PETA people, we might think that's bad, uh, you know, and we may be like grossed out by it and we may be sad by it. We'd be sad by it if a coyote ate my dog, you know. But what makes it morally wrong for people to abuse other people? What makes it morally wrong for a strong person to abuse and enslave a weak person? It's because that weak person is an image bearer of Christ and that is being sullied. They they are more than that. They are more than that. Yeah, I totally agree. And My so, whole point is, well, so what happens? They're going to be confronted with that. Every person that does that evil is going to recognize and own that themselves. Now, they may own that on the way to annihilation. That's a possibility. That outer darkness place where they're just, they're, you know, they're there until... But they may also own it to restoration, to repentance. I think that's what God's goal is. Nebuchadnezzar illustrates that to me. And fortunately, he illustrated it in his life so everybody can believe it. You don't have to wait till the afterlife and speculate. Nebuchadnezzar was brought low and confronted with his own demonic personality and his demonic actions. And what he said when he came out of that was, bless God most high. Everybody is going to have that kind of a confrontation. And if they don't or can't let go of that evil, then I would have to side with the annihilationist, I guess. But I think that's the purpose of Christ dying and the purpose of the the work of the Holy Spirit, they're going to be confronted and they are going to have to own it. Personally, I think somebody, like we've talked about child traffickers, two people need to be restored in that relationship. And not the relationship. Two people because of that relationship, because of that abuse, need to be restored. 
The child that grows into an adult that's carrying all that brokenness and damage, it's not an, you know, there, if, if we caught the trafficker, do we think it would help them if we gave them a shotgun and strapped the guy up against a wall and said, there you go, get vengeance? No. We would just add, we would add to something that they have to overcome. But if God can restore them to wholeness and health and cleanse them totally, could you envision a place in that active, multifaceted eternity where those two confront one another and the trafficker goes, I'm so sorry. I didn't recognize the glory in your life. And I thought because in my selfishness and my brutality and in my strength, I could take advantage of you that that gave me some right to do that. And I, I have walked through fire to be cleansed from that and then drop on their knees and say, can you forgive me? And this person who lived so much of their life unable to even look somebody in the eye, isn't even put off by that, but bends down and takes their face and pulls them up and said, I've already forgiven you. I'm whole. Anything less than that is not suitable to live in eternity. That is what the restoration has to look like. And I I do want to say something. If I have a chance to try to intervene, interdict a wrong, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to stand by and say, oh, well, eventually watching this guy traffic this kid's going to be fine. If I can run over there and knock the crap out of the guy and get him on the ground and get shot in the process, that's what I'm going to do. But I don't want to think that me doing that is the answer that ultimately is going to work out in heaven. God's going to have to get everybody to the place where they are fully confronted by their own bestiality. Right. And that could be they're confined for a time. It could be. Absolutely. I mean, it could be. Yeah, see, that's why I think that there's a weakness in the sort of general uh, assumption about like the the universalist image I try to bring. That just when we all die, oh, oh, Jesus, he died. He's enough for everybody. Oh, it's okay. You know, we'll all just kind of chummy chummy together. No, I don't think that. Because that's, it's not, that's not what is needed up there. What's needed, I don't need to have a substitutionary righteousness. I don't want to be afraid when I hear God walking around the corner. I don't want to feel like I've got to hide because I know that inside I'm just as filthy as I was before. What I need is to be clean. What I need is fire. And there's fire. Mm-hmm. And that could come on this earth before eternity. It could, absolutely. Yeah, yeah repentance is a real thing. I mean, uh, Corey Ten Boom and, and her guard, you know, that's a, that's a living example of that that took place now. And I, I want everybody to have that. Okay. But I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna accuse God of failing if I don't see it happen today. Mm-hmm. Because I don't want to just, give my heart that way. Oh, yeah. Just say something. I cannot even begin to imagine 
Like I remember when I did something wrong and the, and the guilt and everything that came upon me from doing those things wrong. And we live with that guilt. We live with that guilt for years. When people do something wrong, they are, they, it doesn't go away. Like it's like the robber who first robs. They can justify it and they can do that type of stuff, but the guilt does not go away. And I, I believe that that's the, that's the problem. They're living in hell already. They're living in hell already. They're living separated from God. And we've got the blessing where we're not separated from God. We're walking with him through. Talks about the conscience being seared. And the, and the, the effect of a conscience being seared is that you don't feel your guilt. If one of the very first things that happens when we are confronted by Christ, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, if we're, or to, to come before the judgment seat of Christ, or whatever the image is, if, if the very first thing that happens is that seared conscience is breathed back into acute life, perfect sensitivity, imagine the weight of a life of abuse or selfishness. And that's why I tried to say the other day, even if you just take something that seems sort of trivial, like the, the sort of leader of the pack, good-looking cheerleader girl in high school that rips on some other girl and, and thereby damages that gal's confidence in life. But imagine that conscious, if, if that was the first thing that came back to life, I'd understand why Jesus has to go wipe tears from the eyes. I didn't know. I'm so, you know, is there hope? Well, there's only hope in God. The question is, is there hope then? Paul says if we only hope in Christ in this life, we are to be all uh, of all men pitied. Oh, yeah. No, go ahead, Dave. Go ahead. Hang on there, Jeremy. So I've come to, as we've been going through this study on justice and all of these other words, I've come to think of our daddy as being, his intent is restoration. Mm hmm when he applies vengeance, it's for restoration. His sense of justice brings about restoration. And I think about that scripture that says, there'll come a time and in, in, there'll come a time when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's not something that comes because somebody's getting hit upside the head and made to say that. I, I don't think it's coercion. No, I think it's, I, no. it's, it's because of what we'll know at that point in time. And I think somewhere in that getting to that confession is, the horror of what we have been. We're going to know the bad stuff that we've done, and it is going to be crushing. Mm -hmm. And that's when Daddy's going to have to wipe away every tear. It's going to require grace, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's going to require grace. Yeah, I, 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 that's what I think is going to happen. Jeremy, I, I think conversations like this are really important for us to grapple with as a church. Um, especially when we have differing opinions, because that's a good litmus test for, you know, things that we need to keep talking about. And, and so I, I'm not entirely sure if I uh, understood uh, some of what Jen was bringing up, but I think I do. And, and so in the old Testament, God wiped out entire nations and on the earth, there wasn't a restoration that I saw. You know, maybe there was eventually at some point. And so we have that, what seems to be a little bit of a scriptural conflict. Um, and I think it's a safe thing that that what we're talking about here 
I think fits our theology at Joyland. Is that a safe, safe uh, statement to make? I, I guess I'm not sure that we all share the same exact theology, and that's totally okay. But uh, well, yeah. I, think I think there's a common thread of our theology when we say that that God is about restoration, and uh, you know, it's it's a restoration for the perpetrator as well as the victim. That's something I think we would all agree with. And, and so that's what I mean by that. That doesn't mean we're, that doesn't mean it's wrong for us to say it. Cause I, I like what we're saying. Um, as an example, I had a pastor that we know that said to me once, if, if somebody came into the house and was threatening the family, his obligation would be to restrain that person until the police arrived. That would not be my plan. The person would die. And, and so you know, that's, I think we get these things confused because what we're talking about is a, is a, is a, a deeper justice sense of justice that God has versus consequences on the earth. And, and they may be two different things um, that, that reflect back on your comment about the old Testament. I don't know how many scriptures it takes to give a person permission to think about things continuing to go on in heaven for me, it doesn't take a lot. So, for instance, there's two two instances where Jesus talked about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, or the sons and daughters of Sodom are gonna the daughters of Sodom are gonna fare better than Chorazin. Okay, Sodom was one of those places that was wiped off the earth and no longer existed. There didn't seem to be any mercy, but there still seems to be interaction. Jesus said that. He's the one that said that. He said, uh, talking about the woes of Chorazin, Sodom is going to be better off than you. Now, better off, if, 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 if you're there, you're done. There's no such thing as better off. So I don't know what better off means. And I'm not trying to impose on it. I'm not trying to say this is what it means. I'm just saying that opens up my heart to say, okay, this could be another place. And I know there's some dispute over whether this was the fallen angels around the flood or this was the souls that it talked about. But Jesus proclaimed, preached to them. Now, some people uh, have, have taught it like Jesus went down into that place where these were held in prison and went, no, 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 see, you're wrong. That doesn't strike me like Jesus. I don't feel like he would have to do that. He could just do nothing. But what he did go down, they used the same word, kerygma, to speak, you know, and so he went down there and he made some kind of proclamation. And so that's what I'm, those give me permission to think of an active eternity that is centered around redemption and centered around reformation and centered around corruption and corruption being purified. Um, fire, every man's works are going to be tested. They're going to go through the fire and the fire itself will test it on that day. And if they suffer loss, they'll suffer loss but they themselves be saved. So that's why I have permission to think about an active eternity where nobody gets away with anything. The other side of that is everybody is confronted with what they do fully and their seared conscience is unseared. The horror, like you say, Dave, of who they actually became. And also, if we were to, con- if we had the ability to convince somebody in this life right now, you were this terrible and we had some kind of scale that we could get them from wherever they think they are up to 100. The one big piece that would be missing is the awareness of who they were made to be. 
that's going to be different. It's going to be like, let me show you what it means that you were created in my image. And now look at what you did with that. I mean, that's frightening. Ronnie. So I like the idea of the act of eternity, Mm -hmm. what you're saying. And I believe any of us that have come to the point where we've learned how to help restore a situation, we've learned it from God. Mm -hmm. So I credit God as... Even now in this life, you mean? Yeah, even now in this life. Absolutely. And so I think if anybody could cause restoration, it would be God. Yeah. Okay. So with that said, there's still a big mystery, which we started this whole um, talk tonight about, is vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not a mystery. We don't, no, that's not. It's not a mystery, though. Vengeance is his. I'm not suggesting that vengeance doesn't exist. I'm not saying there's not a response to evil. I'm not saying you are. Okay. Okay, I'm, just I don't want to let it stand that that let me finish vengeance that. is not real. Yeah. Go ahead. Venge, I think vengeance is real, mm-hmm. but the catch is we don't know what it looks like. Right. And so I think it's okay for us to consider that God says vengeance is mine, and if there's an act of eternity and vengeance hasn't seemingly happened here on earth, it's probably going to happen in the activity in eternity. And we can leave it to God because we don't know what it looks like, honestly. Right. I mean, nothing you, as far as I can tell, nothing we talked about tonight talks about what God's going to do as vengeance. Right. It just says it's his. Yeah. So that means for me, I don't understand what happens in the act of eternity, but I'm going to say vengeance happens up there (laughs) if it hasn't happened elsewhere. Right. And I'm also going to say restoration happens up there if it hasn't happened elsewhere. That's a good point, that both are still available. Excellent. Okay, sorry, I jumped down your throat a little bit. Monique. So I'm not really sure how this fits in with everything, because it's really not that heavy as okay. everything else. Good. Um, Great one to end on. Right? But I felt like I should share this little random story. Uh, and you touched on it a little bit when you talked about Mean Girls. Um, But my little lesson in eighth grade about vengeance is God's looks like a teen movie. It's awesome. Like you're everybody's teasing you and making fun of you and ramshacking your locker, and the whole grade outcasts you, and you're sitting by yourself in the cafeteria, and eighth graders take pity on you, you know, and and befriend you. And this whole time I'm still like defending myself. I'm gonna do this thing. I'm not this bad. Blah 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 blah. And so in the, uh, on the way to a youth conference, not the youth conference, but a senior in the back of the, uh, made a statement. And little Monique's in the back with an attitude bigger than Godzilla going, I mean, in the back of the bus, like that tells you where I was in my mentality, right? Because only the bad kids sit in the back of the bus. And uh, he goes, senior in the front goes, well, you can talk about me all that you please. And I'll talk about you down on my knees. And I went, well, actually, Holy Spirit went. And, and my response was like, okay, God, 
with the likes. Like, okay, God, like, I'll do it your way this time, but like, if it doesn't work, I'm totally not doing it again. <laughs> and, and he brought me through this process of refining. He didn't whop bang the baddies straight away. He didn't do that. Instead, he showed me what it was to be loved. And I think that's our key. You only want vengeance when you don't know how much you're loved, mm -hmm. right? Like, you only need that, like, if you don't understand love. When you get love, you don't, you're like, oh, poor Satan. Like, darn, he doesn't get redeemed. Like, I'm kind of bummed about that. You know what I mean? Like, I'd like to kick him in the head sometimes, but still, you know what I mean? Like, I, like there's an understanding of love. And so what God did in that time was say, this is how much I value you. This is how much I love you. So that it got to be the point where I just didn't respond to these things. And there's a pep rally. This is the, like, crescendo, the end, like, put me on TV. There's a pep rally in the gymnasium. You do not release teenagers that have been pepped up back to class. You just leave them alone and dismiss them into the wild, right? So we were in that last 10 minutes before we were dismissed into the wild, and I received another horrible note from Cindy, Michelle, and Tim. And the first miracle that took place in my life was the teacher that, like, posts them, like, trophies above things, you know, like, antlers. She had all these notes from, really, the, you know. She came up behind where I'm reading it, and Charis is reading it, and she goes, you don't need friends like that, and walk away. So that was miracle number one in my eighth grade life, right? But I also didn't care anymore. There was a, a wholeness, a sense of love, and you have that sense of love, and then you just don't need to kill people. You don't need to see them die, right? It just doesn't have, it just, so I didn't really care. And Michelle was the, the leader of all of this. She was the, the queen bee. She had flunked out of ninth grade, and I'm still in seventh grade, so she had flunked two years. So that would make you angry anyway. And the mighty year nines call me over, and they're like, Monique! did Michelle write you this? And I'm like, yes. And they're like, well, that's it. We're not talking to her. And in a matter of two minutes, the entire high school was on my seventh grade command. I was like, I mean, it was really, it was, and it, you know, Michelle comes up, do you want to fight me? I'm on the bleachers. It really is something out of the movies, right? And so I say, well, you can talk about me all that you please. I'll talk about you down on my knees. And I walk away. Like, tell me that's not high school vengeance, right? Like, <laughs> hello. Um, and after that, because I had done things God's way, it works the best, right? So now he's got me. And the, I don't torture them, you know, because I understand love. I don't need to see them squirm. Next day they say sorry. I eat with them at lunch. They're deemed okay. Graduate homecoming queen, right? Because God rocks. And this whole concept of love, you don't need to see people die when you understand how much you're loved. So, yes, hell, I think, is a real place. Will people go there? Yes. Is that going to suck? Yes. But you can love them through it now. That's kind of the way I see it. Amen. Amen. <sighs> this is about hell. Pardon me? Hell. Uh-huh. Um, do you think that people go to hell just because they don't accept Jesus as their Lord? Uh, let's see here. But let's say they're a great person. Yeah. And they um, are who God created them to be, but they haven't met Jesus or they haven't asked Jesus into their heart or they haven't, Yeah, they don't walk with Jesus. 
I, I think that is uh, the fundamental understanding of that number one illustration there, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't share that. I don't share that illustration. I don't share that belief. Okay. Um, I, I, it's more than I can explain right now. I, yeah. I, I think that the, the fault of a dualistic view like that, where there's just one place and there's another, this one's bliss, this one's hell, and that all that has to be decided now, I think it doesn't take tons of scripture in, into alignment okay. or into accountability. And so it would be difficult. So my basic answer is no. Uh, but then for it to be a meaningful answer, I'd have to take another sure. while and sit down and chat with you, which I'll be happy to do after worship, okay. uh, over what I do think is going on and and the concept of hell and, and where that does apply and all that kind of stuff. But the way it's been pawned out, uh, I don't think so. And the primary reason is because um, I, I believe it's, it's super important to accept Jesus. I believe it's uh, a beginning of the end of alienation. It's life-changing. It's the fruit of the gospel. It's all that kind of stuff. But it's the relationship, the life of Jesus, not just the accepting of him. It's the life of Jesus getting a hold of us and transforming us that makes us capable of being alive in eternity. Mm-hmm. Eternal life is not a ticket that you punch. Eternal life is knowing God mm-hmm. and Jesus. And so um, I think that everybody that's going to successfully endure in eternity, for eternity, is going to know God. And if there if there is a condition or a place for people who just utterly refuse to know God, then, and if that's possible, then hell would be that place, I suppose. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Yeah, there is. Yeah, there absolutely is. Yeah, there is. As a matter of fact, we just, it was about uh, eight, ten sermons ago or so, we, we looked at the concept of the word hell and the concepts. It'd be, it'd be uh, probably worth it if you want to take a look at it. I'll talk to you about it later.